0: Before we went on air but you know when the band toured um, or even when they had some of their um, let's say moderate hits um, was there some regional differences did you find that you know in the tri-state area and in that area that there was a bigger following than if you went to the middle of the country or to the West Coast what, what was that like Um,
1: with That's an interesting question, Um, and I and to some degree it depended on uh, the time frame. Um, With Jimmy, when you're doing the the Chitlin' Circuit, um, when I started out with Jimmy, we we were we were playing the Chitlin' Circuit. We really didn't even have have a record, you know. Uh, so, like I said, when you go into these clubs, you're just providing that weekend entertainment for people that are coming. So sometimes they would, they might have heard of you, uh, depending on where you were, uh, how close to New York. Um, um, but they were listening to the music, you know. Uh, as as you started getting some 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 uh, national exposure through records, or even regional, depending on how big the record was. Um, then people would come to see you because of the song not because they knew the reputation of the band you know and then you would try to expand from that um with fatback um it wasn't until they actually started getting um more airplay outside of the new york area that they started to expand out obviously because you know uh club owners won't uh uh, hire you to come into their club if they don't think you can bring a, 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 an audience in. Uh, I have a kind of funny, a humorous uh, uh, anecdote, uh, I remember we used to, when I was with Jimmy, especially in the early days, we used to, to play Atlantic City, this is long before the casinos came to Atlantic City, Atlantic City was always like a beach resort that people would go to. And uh, we played at a club called the Wonder Garden. Um, which there were two main club uh, Club home and uh, was right around the corner, which is where most of the major acts played. And then there was the Wonder Garden where some major acts played. It was a little bit, you know, uh, maybe a step below. Um, and I remember one time we were playing there and Jimmy told me, you know, he said, yeah, the, the club owner is doing us a favor, man. He, he booked us in here for this bid. I said, and I looked at Jimmy, I said, Jimmy, that line is going all the way around the block, you know. I said he'd be doing us a favor. We were just playing for the barmaids. <laughs> I said, He's making money. He's not doing us a favor. <laughs> you know? So it was a funny way of looking at. It. But I mean, club owners would like to do that. Um, one of the things that used to always amaze me: we would play brand new clubs sometimes, and and you go in, you'd go into the club. And you get them set up. And you get you set up your equipment. And then you ask club on, okay, where are the dressing rooms? Oh, you can change in the bathroom. <laughs> you can change in the office. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, it was that was like the last thought, and I mean, that still goes on. I still hear those types of stories from from musicians. Yeah, and you guys are,
0: uh, I'm sure they're traveling by car most of most of the time. I mean, when did they finally? You know, what year did they start going by airplane?
1: Uh that depended on when where we were going. Um, a lot of times we would rent car. Well, in the beginning, especially with Jimmy, you know, it was his car. Whoever else had a car, might have to rent one car. And then eventually got to the point where we started hire. We we rent a bus. There was uh, Academy buses, which is a, a big concern now. At that time, it was a much smaller. Uh, you know you didn't see as many Academy buses as you do now I see Academy buses all over the place so they've, they've really grown but back in those days uh, we would rent a bus and they weren't custom buses they were regular buses so you know you sit sitting sit up you know, <laughs> you weren't laying down no TVs no nothing you know but it would get you from place to place and uh, and the same thing with uh, with fatback Um we even made some trips to the West Coast by bus, yeah. Uh, but a lot of times we would we would fly, and obviously if we went, um, you know, outside of the country, um, with Jimmy, like I said, we would go to Canada, went to Panama, um, uh, England, France, Germany, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia was really interesting. Uh, a lot of desert. A lot of desert.
0: Very hot. A lot of what? Desert. Desert. Yeah. A lot of desert. A lot <laughs> of desert. Uh,
1: I remember we we went out to play, um, and we were playing for Aramco. That was the Arab American oil company, right? So as long as you were on Aramco's territory, you were on US soil, basically. Once you left out of there, you were under Saudi Arabia's rules. So uh and, and uh, one of the things they told us is, okay, if, if you see part of the royal family, don't look at them. So I can remember we were in, I think it was Riyadh, and we were, we were walking towards a store, and all of a sudden we see this Rolls Royce pull up on the side, right? And and when the door opened, all you saw was this, this leg with the slit was one of the princesses right so we're trying to look without looking (laughs) it was really it was really funny Um, the other thing I remember about Saudi Arabia was they the gold they had the gold jewelry was no less than 21 carats so the gold was so yellow that it didn't look real because we're not used to seeing that type of purity in the gold you saw here you know so that was weird and then uh, the guys that would come in to, 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 uh, to, to buy, the guys that worked at Aramco, because they had nothing else to spend their money on, you know, they'd come in and have water of uh, bills. We were there for two weeks. We saw, and, and uh, the first time we went over, I think it was 73. Well, it was 78. I think the, uh, the Mets had been in the World Series. So we saw the World Series out of order their
0: mm-hmm.
1: TV um we played basketball for one week every morning and you had to play basketball between the hours of maybe 5 30 and 7 because by 7 a.m it was too hot uh-huh. to be outside and we went to play for an, another uh, uh, unit of, of aramco further out in the desert when we got to where they had a staying I can remember turning on the air conditioner and I had it on the warmest setting. I could have kept meat frozen in my room. That's how industrial strength that air conditioner was. That was, it was, it was an amazing, amazing place.
0: Wow. What interesting lifestyles. It's uh, very cool to get to travel the world uh, and, and see all that. It is. It is. So, I wanted to ask you about the, the record labels, you know, you had a few of them, but it seems like at least through the, the 70s, and maybe some into the 80s, there wasn't a lot of like meddling by the label or outside producers, and I, I mean, you, you seem to be able to pretty much keep sort of your own bubble, if you will, uh, what, were there any pressures, you know, and how are uh, single choices determined, and how are the, uh, you know, the album covers and imaging chosen for the bands?
1: Well, on Jimmy's side, it was basically Jimmy and his partner that that, that did that, um, that handled um, the artwork. Some of the artwork was actually done by uh, John Pruitt, uh, like the Butt of Course album, which was the drawing of Bertha Butt and then Jimmy and the Superman Elsa. That was John's concept, you know, so they went with that. For the most part, the labels kind of left us alone. there might be some arguments uh, over uh, single choices, um, more so over promotion than, than, uh, than the choice of, because uh, if, if you've been in the record business, you know how that kind of works and how much airplay you get sometimes and the rotation can determine uh, the success or failure and, uh, and which acts get, more than other acts depending on what they're bringing into the label in terms of revenue um, and this this was before uh mtv and all the rest of that stuff so when you, you didn't have the video supported back in those days um, with fatback um spring records was really a very small family record you know it was the uh the rifkins roy and julius rifkin and, and uh, bill swatowski basically ran that though Uh, They had us, Millie Jackson, uh, Joe Tex. Uh, So sometimes we'd have some very interesting discussions about album, uh, single choices. Um, When we did uh, King Tim the Third, Bill had already gone down. There used to be uh, Jack the Rapper. Radio conventions that used to happen every year, where all the uh, black DJs would go and converge. It was sort of like Naris uh, on the other side. And uh, so Bill had taken this down there, uh, uh, a dub of, of uh, King Tim the Third, and let DJs hear it. You know, to gauge how they'd respond to it. Because back in that time, uh, DJs did a lot of talking on the air. Um, so we wanted to make sure that they didn't feel like we were encroaching on the area, well, they loved it, but the Rifkins were scared to to put that out as the single, so they would they flipped it and put it on the B side and put You're know, My Candy Sweet as the A side, which to us was the worst choice they could have made. But you know, so that gave uh, Joe Robinson and Sylvia of Sugar Hill the opportunity to get Rapper's Delight out. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 one choice, you know. So we've had some other uh, interesting things, you know, where they'd wanted to put two A sides back to back, and say, no, you we know, don't don't do that, you know, because you know you've only got so many A sides on a record, you know. Um, usually, like you say, you know, you'd have a couple of songs that you felt really strong about, and then there might be a lot of filler in there, and, and as many albums as Fatback was putting out you had to come up with filler because you're not going to come up with, with, with all a sides, you know, you just don't have the time to do that. You know, when you're on a two, two album a year type of schedule and you're working, you know, you just can't, can't devote as much time to doing that. You'd like
0: to, but you know, what did the label want two records a year? Did you guys want to do two records a year? Uh, In the beginning,
1: uh, I didn't, well, because I wasn't involved in that that much um, uh, because I was still working with Jimmy. So I wasn't focused on the day-to-day. That was more Bill. And, and I think uh, he knew that that was one way to stimulate the, 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 the road work, the actual performance work. Um, later on, towards the end, as he and I had discussions, I was telling him we're putting them out too fast which kind of worked against us because then he wound up doing an extension with Spring, which kept um, uh, the With Love album, which was our last album, would have been the album that we would have taken to Atlantic when we went to Atlantic, but wound up doing staying with with Spring. And on that record was a record called I Found Lovin', which was a huge hit in, in England, which if it had been with Atlantic, would have gotten the kind of promotion that could have really, uh, uh, done wonders for the group in terms of stature, you know? So, but those, you know, I mean, those are the types of things that you deal with and you live with, you
0: know? Well, you know, I was a, uh, <clears throat> a record, uh, you know, been rat, you know, for, for years. And I started getting into that probably right around the time or a little after, uh, Fatback's Yum Yum album. And that cover, Always got my attention, so uh, <laughs> you know. But that that record had the um, <clears throat> title track, which was a classic funk track, as far as I'm concerned. Um, give me some. You yeah. know, how did that one come together? Was that just from a long jam? And did you know that that was like a killer groove right from the start? We knew it was. Uh, um,
1: that was that was written by by Johnny King, the guitarist, uh, and that was the way he presented it to us you know so we said okay yeah let's let's go with it you know and uh uh, i mean uh you could feel the groove and with it so it, it was no problem um yeah yeah we just very very little alteration to it you
0: know how did you decide on you know we talked a little bit about editing how did you decide on like the track lengths you know like that one you know, I mean, I, I would be okay if it went on forever, you know, but how do you decide that? <laughs> um,
1: some of them did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, part of that was was uh, the custom at the time. Um, uh when I first started listening to records, and 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 uh, I've been listening for a long time. As a Matter of fact, I worked in a record store, so I remember when Bobby Darin came out with Splish Splash, the first 45. You know, so uh, the
0: record length uh, was it sliced Stone? It was sliced down on that one. Well, no, i was thinking of Swim. I'm thinking of oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. so the average length was like uh, maybe two fifteen to two thirty. And then uh, I think Jim Webb, when he did uh, MacArthur Park, really expanded it. Also, the Dell Stay in My Corner, because um, uh, you didn't you didn't see records that long. Um, so they started to get a little bit longer and longer. Because um, the average album back in those days may have been about... 45 to 50 minutes worth of, of, of uh, music. And part of that was the, just the physics of how much you could put on that that lacquer, you know, that you're making a record from. Obviously with digital now, that's no longer a concern. Uh, uh, and how much EQ you put on the record. And you know a lot of funk records are bass heavy, which causes, you got to have wider grooves for the needle to track that, otherwise it skips all over the place. Um, so, Part of that limited to that, but as the technology grew, the, the times grew, and you could you could expand that. But um, it depended on. I mean, some of it was just the way the Strong's were were structured, you know, and, and how much we thought uh, um, they could go on. Uh, a lot of times, um, uh, if if we were to pull out the t- the original tape, you'd hear it keep going and going and going, and we just say, okay, that's enough. Um, I used to remember some of the gigs we used to do with, with, with uh, Parliament Funkadelic, um, I used to say George could could uh, win them and lose them all in the same show because he would play a groove so long that it would just wear you out. And some, a couple of times, this was with Jimmy, he would flip us to the headline spot before him so that by the time he got off. People were ready to leave, and <laughs> they would go. The judge would play these kind of little tricks on you sometimes,
0: but but we love them. <laughs> Did you have any other memories from uh, bands that you uh, met or toured with back in that era, <clears throat> and any like special memories of stand down? Um.
1: I won't name names um, some bands were very very accommodating in terms of of uh, uh, maybe use of equipment a lot of times when you did the shows especially uh, later on the equipment would be rented so you you know other than your own personal instrument maybe the amps were all the same you know um, some bands um, wouldn't mind you plug it into the amps or not change you know they didn't have a problem with you changing the settings for your show and they do the same thing for theirs some you know no don't touch it don't do this don't do that you know it was almost like when you worked in New York because it was it's a union town you can't even carry your own instrument to the stage that has to be done by by uh, you know one of the the uh, the techs uh, then the union people at the at the at the uh, at the venue. I'm thinking of Madison Square Garden as one. But I mean that you understood, but when you're touring with a group, you don't expect that type of thing, you know. But I will tell you one uh, funny story and it's not necessarily about about a band. Um, when I before we became the Jimmy Costa um uh, just before he named it the Jimmy Castle Bunch, we got on a tour with Diana Ross and the Supremes. It was just before she left. And we did two dates out of this tour because we were getting too much attention. And we we found that out for a fact, you know, that that was the reason why they took us off. You know, we were interfering with the headliners. But but we worked with a lot of groups. I mean, we did shows with... uh, uh, Marvin Gaye, uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, uh, The Commodores. Matter of fact, uh, the Commodores' original manager Benny Ashburn uh, told me about the group because he used to come into Smalls Paradise a lot when, when uh, Jimmy was playing there, and he said, "Man, I got these guys down in Tuskegee. They're great." And I said, "Well, Benny, you know, when you bring them up, man, you know, let me know." And so I met them, you know, before they had ever done any recordings and uh, Lionel and all the rest of the guys. Um, and, uh, you know, I told him, I said, yeah, you got a great group. These guys can go far, you know, and then they blew up, you know, had their big hits and, and we did some tours with them um, and uh, get, to, got to watch to see how that affected people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, but uh Uh, you, you. Uh, the interesting thing about the, the the music business, I mean, people are people, you know, and I guess uh, it was like somebody said about, well, no, I won't go that. I won't get political. Uh, but anyway, uh, I'll paraphrase it. I'll put it this way: uh, Who you are. Just gets magnified by whatever status you get in in life success in life so if you are the kind of person that's open and welcoming you stay that way for the most part you know unless something shuts you down you know some kind of uh, negative event Um, and if you're a closed person as you you know uh, rise up in stature. You stay that way. You stay the same way. You know. So, you you find that that's 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 very true. It was it was. um I remember one time we were playing in South Carolina. I think it was South Carolina. It might have been Georgia. Um, and James Brown came to the club. You know, the, to, to see the show. Now, this was right at the time, right after his son was killed. And he invited Jimmy, myself, and the bass player to come to his house, you know, to hang out. I I think he was just lonely and he wanted to to talk to some people, you know, that were that could maybe relate to him, because because James always had that thing about, you know, and everybody was around him. You had to call him Mr. Brown, Mr. Brown, you know. At that night, he was James, you know. So it was very interesting, um, and and you got to see a side of him, or at least I I did that you don't you didn't normally see you know uh, but he was wrong. He was very vulnerable that night you know I mean his garage was full of cars all that stuff you might have read about you know you saw he liked collecting cars and, and he, he he was very gracious he showed us around his house you know and everything and we were there for maybe a couple of hours talking with him and just shooting the breeze you know and the next time I saw James he was back to mr. Brown <laughs> Yeah. And then the amazing thing to us because he, he was directly on Polydor or Polygram and we were we talked about Fatback was with Polydor through Spring because Spring had the licensing deal with, with, with Polygram. So when uh he started uh going off the deep end there, you know, it was just it was kind of amazing because he was he was such a uh I'm not going to say control, but he was he was focused, you know what I'm saying. So I'm not sure what happened that caused him to to do some of the things that he did towards the end of his life. You know, whether it was uh, just letting go, circumstances who he was around, I don't know. But you know, it w- it was really a surprise to us. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: But, but my experience I it, to, meet to meet James, James. James. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very cool so you know it looks like in 76 with the night fever album that we had touched on before uh, that was a label change is that correct well they were both um,
1: they were both owned by spring but it went from event to spring directly so that was a decision by the Rifkin so there wasn't any there was no change in who we were dealing with in terms of uh, company execs There was just they took us off of their their, I guess you could say, their minor label and put us on their major
0: label. I got you. Yeah. So I'm talking about some of the records that kind of led up to some of the bigger hits. Um, I noticed on some of the records you you labeled. Uh, I'm looking at a man with the uh, band, uh, a vintage or uh, house party side and a disco party side, and you had a few records like that. What was behind that idea? Um, basically.
1: Um, just to let people know, you know which ones were, which they could put on, um, and basically just let let the side play. You know, like I said, that was before. Uh, I won't say it's before tapes because this we had eight tracks back then. Uh, um, eight tracks maybe cassettes were just coming in. Um, but it was a way of just putting it on and letting it letting it play, uh, let people know this is the party side, and this is the listening side. Sort of what um, uh, Ace did the same type of thing where they put out a compilation of of the funk, the funky music, and then the mellow, the mellow tunes. Yeah, so that's that's where we were trying to go with that. I'm not gonna say they all fit perfectly,
0: but <laughs> kind of close. So I'm going to t- talk about, uh, some of the other records fired up and kick in, in more depth in a minute, but, uh, leading up to that, which was uh, 78, is there anything in the uh, catalog, uh, whether it's an album or a song that really, uh, is special to you, stands out that you'd like to highlight? <sighs> We're talking about albums like man with the band, uh, nyc ny usa yeah uh night fever and all those well night fever was was an attempt to
1: capitalize off of spanish hustle so there's very similar type of songs um so that was like the follow-up basically to spanish hustle um spanish hustle i did in response to van mccoy's the hustle but i wanted to do it with the to to acknowledge the the Spanish population you know that aspect and uh, which had the heavy influence in the disco arena anyway Um, so that was kind of uh, something I wanted to do and at the same time a thoughtful way of marketing the record you know Um, it depends on my mood uh because i did I sometimes i'll put together a a playlist of fatback stuff uh some of which is stuff that's that was that's off those albums and then some things that haven't even been released um and sometimes i'll go on youtube and and look up fatback or i'll look up jimmy and then just uh now it's a little harder to do because you don't see the comments as much but just see how people reacted to different things, and then then you listen to you listen to the songs say, oh
0: yeah, I remember.
1: that. And then you remember the, what was going on at the time that you that you did the songs. Uh, some of them had um, some of them are you don't remember the, the details, and some of them the details come crashing back at you because they
0: were so weird. Uh, um, also, you were working so fast, I think you know too that you were. Correct. Doing it, moving on. Doing it, moving on.
1: Exactly. Um, now, like bus stop, I remember. You know, um, partially because there was some, there were a lot of different parts that I played on that. You know, in terms of keyboards, you know, some organ, you know, there's some clavinet, some um, electronic keys. Um, And just that whole process of doing it and singing some of the background and all that stuff, you know. So it it depended on how much I actually did. Some stuff uh, they had already worked on, and then I might come on and do a little polish or write some string parts. Um, Everybody's Going Disco Crazy uh, was interesting um, because I did do the disco strings on that one. But in the middle of the record, something happened to the tape. The master. Now that was one of those situations where you actually had to cut the 24 tracks mm-hmm. you know and so I had to find just the spot because you'll hear if you listen to 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 uh everybody's going disco tra- crazy you'll hear it's it's in one groove in the beginning and then it switches into it's still a disco but it, it takes a different feel and that was because of how I had to try to put these two pieces together so we could keep the song you know. So, it I like the fact that it it, it would it, you get called to to you get creative on a technical side as well as a musical side. Sometimes you know uh, the same thing. Sometimes when you were editing singles, you know, to get a single um, for for a radio play, you know, sometimes you had to cut do uh, strategic splices, uh, which is much easier today than it was back then. But. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when
0: we first—it's a lost art now. Uh, it is.
1: It really is. Because I mean, uh, well, when we when I started recording, it was four track. That was the, the 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 technology at that time. So, so that you had to record in a specific specific way. So you might have drums and and bass on the same tracks you know, and then the keyboard, and then the, the vocals you put on top of it, so you didn't have all the multi-layering that came later. Um, and then once you did that, that's the way it was, you know, because you couldn't go back and pull it apart. So then it went to 8, and then it went to 16, and it went to 24, and now you got Limitless, you
0: know. I got to say, one of my uh, favorite tracks by uh, Jimmy Castor Bunch was Super Sam. Yeah. That one was, you know, because that was more straight-ahead funk, I would say. Right. Um, Yeah, so do you remember putting that one down? I remember us playing that. I
1: don't remember the session that much, Um, but I I do remember uh, uh, the groove. Um, At that time, um, we had replaced uh, uh, our bass player. Uh, Doug Gibson with Paul Forney, was the new bass player, so getting him um, into that that kind of groove because he had a he had a, a different way of grooving than Doug did. You know, um, uh, you'd have to meet Paul to understand what I'm saying. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's fine because sometimes new guys can bring a, a fresh new energy, and sometimes you feel the loss, and you know you never know quite where that's going to end up. That's, that's, that's very true, you know, but uh,
1: the, the good thing about Paul was he was really open to listening and, and hearing and trying. So, uh, generally, when you find that, um, uh, generally, you might shift where you're going and might not be going where you were going, but you change directions and wind up going someplace that, that you don't mind going, you know, uh, it gives it a different way of viewing things. So, that can be refreshing, you know, gives you a different spark.
0: So let's talk about the album that really kind of changed the game for Fatback, In my opinion, that's fired up and kick in, which had the huge hit. I like girls, you know, being in Los Angeles. I mean, that track was, you know, in the hourly rotation for I don't know how long. And I was in high school at the time and, you know, P funk and the Ohio players were like my favorite bands. And I mean, that was right in there. You know, you mentioned the P funk influence, but I think there's some Ohio players influence in there too. Oh, yeah. Um, but what a great track. So, I mean, how did you, First, come up with that groove and how did it develop
1: um that was more or less uh uh that we we did in the studio um bill had an idea for the baseline which which uh flip then expounded upon and and uh i kind of just went along for the ride at this point you know i didn't i didn't i didn't do a whole lot uh to it I might have made a suggestion here and there, but but uh, you could feel where the groove was going. And and uh, it's got some 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 strange time signatures in there and spots too. So I kinda I kinda enjoyed that, you know, and, and then where we went for the bridge. Thank so so what I really wanted to add was was the the Bernie Worrell effect on the bottom, you know, adding adding this the mood base and some of the the uh, the, the little uh, squiggles, fictions that that yeah that that Bernie liked to do, um, and and but recognize that that was a great groove and and uh, it was it was a great record for the time of year that it came out, which was coming into uh, late spring, early summer. You know, it was just the time for girl watching. You yeah. know. Um, and what we did, that was done at, at, uh, at Media Sound. And, and what we did is we had the engineer, uh, Ron St. Germain, go out onto the street on 50, 57th Street is where it was located off of, uh, off of uh, 7th Avenue. And um, at that time, well, it came out in the, the late spring, but it was actually recorded earlier in the year so the buses still had their this uh, snow chains on them and if you, you listen to the intro you can actually hear the buses going by you hear those chains rattling you know that's what it is so it was that's that was recorded in stereo and we put we mixed that into the very beginning of the record as they're talking about you know uh, you hear um uh duke uh uh, uh I forget what the phrase he actually says, you know, about, about the very beginning, and uh, and then it gets into that groove, and that groove just just keeps going, and, and just just gets you, you know. So, um,
0: and who's doing who's doing the spoken word uh, parts? Um, that was Bill. Oh, that's Bill, yeah. That was Bill, yeah. Most of that's Bill, and and,
1: and all of that is <laughs> the thing about <laughs> Bill's vocals. Is is one and done. You're not gonna get it the second time, you know. <laughs> so uh he may with a song like that when we do it, you know, he can get into the character of it, but you're not gonna hear it exactly as the record. He could never lip sync his own records because <laughs> he he doesn't remember, them, you know. So they're they're spontaneous type of things, you know.
0: Did, so, did you ever have to perform that on Soul Train? Uh that would have been a lip syncing situation probably. So most and most of the Soul Train that we did
1: uh was lip syncing. You know, even with Jimmy, a lot of times it was lip syncing. They did do some live stuff because you can tell a lot of times, you know, when you when you're watching that which is live and which is the lip sync, Jimmy you hear it start dying down, you know, and say, Okay, we know that that uh they're lip syncing on that one. But but um on on uh the is this the future album? There was a song on right there called uh, "Up Against the Wall," which is all Bill just ep- extemporaneously rapping. You know, you're talking about you know the man and Big Brother and all the rest of that stuff. You know, and we couldn't perform the song; we couldn't do it. And it was funny because in Texas, Tom Joyner liked that that particular record. So I remember. Um, I think I had to, we, I was either in Texas with him or in uh, um, Chicago, I, I forget. I think it was Texas though, because uh, Tom worked in both, used to fly back and forth between both, both cities. I think it was Dallas and, and Chicago. And that was one of the popular records, and I was doing a promotional tour and Bill wouldn't go because he knew he had to do that. So we had to kind of fake it, you know, and just just play, let the track play and, and throw in a couple of the phrases every now and then. But it was funny. But in fact, I got a lot of tunes that we never played live. A lot of tunes, because they just
0: come and then they were gone. <laughs> 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 well, you know, back then, too, I was, uh, you know, High school for me, and I, you know, went to all the the house parties and right. packed in like sardines and little sweat boxes. And I mean, these fat back tracks, like I like girls, they were just phenomenal, you know. In that setting, um, did you know when you recorded it? Did you think, wow, th- I, this is this one's going to be a hit? Um.
1: Well, I mean, you, you, a lot of times you have that feeling, but you, you never knew. And, and it was funny, because we had recorded that, right? And that was right coming up to the end of of uh, Bill's contract with Spring. And he re-signed just before that came out. And I was like, Bill, if you hadn't signed that renewal, we could have taken this record somewhere else. <laughs> we really had it come on. But anyway, like I said, things happen and, and you just go with the flow.
0: So the next record for you after that, the follow up, was uh, Fatback 12, That's 79. Right. And that had the uh, track you're talking about, King Tim the Third. A lot of people uh, call it the first rap song just before Rapper's Delight, uh, as we were, we were saying. Um, Man, that track had a fierce bass line on it. Yeah. Didn't it? Yes, it did. Yeah.
1: Now, I'll tell you the inside on that one. Um, because let me do it. I'm trying to remember the exact name because cause it wasn't done to be a rap record. We had finished the album, right? And uh one of the the roadies that Jimmy had two roadies that worked with him, one Anthony B and, and Tony Avery, and Anthony knew uh, Tim Washington, and he was telling me about Tim Washington and Tim Washington the record stuff. So I said, eh, "Well, you know, let me let me hear him, you know," and and so he he introduced me, and I said, "Oh man!" I said, "We got to we got to get this on a record quick, you know." Um, I mean, we 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 knew about uh because we we knew you know uh there were there were people that are out there that were doing that but but nobody had really done a record you know um with it and we thought the time would be right so i mentioned it to bill so bill said yeah we got to get him in the studio so so we took him to meet the sound and had him rap over the two-track mix of that song so we mixed, we we recorded him live over the two-track. He was never part of the multi. So even if we pulled the multis up, <coughs> there will be no Tim Washington. There'd be no King the Third. It's only on the two-track. Wow. Yeah.
0: You know, on this record, I think also a sign of the Times, you know, Fatback Band was part of what I would call like the first original wave of funk bands in the early 70s. In the later 70s, you had sort of the second wave of the uh, cameos and the confunctions and lakesides and those bands. And some of that influence you could feel on this record, um, You're My Candy Sweet, is sort of like a confunction y kind of disco funk type of track. So, yeah, were you guys feeling that at the time? Yeah, that was
1: another one of uh, that's Bill singing on that record. Um, that was another one of those songs he had an idea for you know and and there wasn't uh, a conscious effort to to uh, to capture anybody's sound it was just kind of where we felt the groove was for what he was doing you know what he was trying to do and uh, and and so that's that's basically how they came together you know. Um, that was another one he, he couldn't sing after the, doing that one, <laughs> you know, he,
0: <laughs> we had a lot of those, so
1: you know, used to teach.
0: Excuse me, that record also had what I think is one of the better fatback ballads in uh Love and Perfect Harmony, hmm. yeah. Um, that was
1: written by uh Flippin, <laughs> Flip and, and he and uh uh Debbie. Deborah Cooper, or the ones that did the leads on that one.
0: Yeah. But I I, I
1: always liked that song. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
0: Talk to me, Jerry, about coexisting with disco back then. Um, You know, Fatback certainly didn't shy away from disco influence. There's a lot of it throughout the music. You know, what was the group's and your personal relationship to disco? And was there ever a concern about? You know, going too much in that direction? Um well, disco grew out of R and B and Funk.
1: I mean, you know, all the early what so-called disco stuff was was just R and B music, you know, it was party music. Uh, and then it started getting tailored, you know, a lot of the European influence came in, you know, Giorgio Moroto and some of the others, you know, started giving it that that sheen you know uh, obviously uh, the movie Saturday Night Fever took it in another direction you know Um, we looked at it as a vehicle obviously you know I mean Spanish Hustle was written you know to appeal to to uh, to the disco crowd so was E man boogie that I did for Jimmy you know and both of them you know got play in the clubs Um, the only concession and i I did it with both groups uh there are songs that jimmy did and, and songs that fatback did where i added those strings that might be sort of the disco type of string sounds but but um like i said to you uh off mic um music is music you know so if i hear something that i think is musical and that can be be uh uh uplifting you know to, to the audience, uh, I'd go ahead and do it. Um, I mean, I, there are things I wouldn't do. And uh, um, I'll give you one example. We were, we were doing a show. I think it was us and Cooling and the Gang. And
0: if you remember Miko. Yeah, Star Wars theme.
1: A Star Wars theme. We, uh, <laughs> we were doing a show in... They were headlining and we were doing a show at Nassau Coliseum. And when we got out there to the sound check, I saw Tony Bon Jovi, who used to engineer our stuff, right? And I said, Tony, you know. And and, uh, and you know Tony's cousin is Bon Jovi, John Bon Jovi. Um, so it's a musical family there. But I said, Tony, what are you doing here? He said, Well, you know, Miko's my group, you know. So I said, Oh really? So When we saw them do the sound check, right, there were about, this is our six people in the group. Now, if you remember the record, this is the Star Wars theme, right, it's a full orchestra. (laughs) And one of the guys that was on stage, a guy or girl, I don't remember now, was playing a tambourine. So they weren't even singing or playing an instrument. There was so uh, so when we saw this, we just looked at Tony. Tony said, "I'm out of here."
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> they went from opening from closing act in Nassau to opening act at Madison Square Garden in one day, because we were in Madison Square Garden the next day. They went to the opening act. They got booed so bad, it was, you know. I kind of felt bad for them, but you knew this was a train wreck. This was going to be a train, And Tony knew it. That's why he, he he did the sound check and left. Because they couldn't sustain what they were doing, you know? Uh, you know, if it had been Barry White, with the Barry White Orchestra, maybe you could have, because at least you would have seen enough musicians there to say, okay, they're pulling this off. But you knew this was, you know, like Millie Vanilli. you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. without somebody looking like they could sing me the parts, you know? <laughs> So, so you know, there was a lot of fluff in disco, but there's a lot of fluff in a lot of musical genres, you know, things that just you wouldn't listen to twice, you know, you hear and say, "Oh man, this is horrible, you know, whether it's an attempt at funk or r and b or pop or rock or country, you know. So the good stuff will rise the cream will rise to the top, you know, Uh, and the bad stuff just gets swept away, you know. So we didn't have a problem with doing some things that had a, we didn't look at it necessarily as disco per se, as danceable, you know, Um, because that was basically the driving force behind disco was music that they could play in the clubs that people would dance to, you know. So that's where it started, you know, that's, that's where the, I'm not gonna say ended up, but I mean, disco is gone, but people are still dancing to you know DJs playing records that are grooves, you know.
0: So let's talk a minute about a different genre, and that's go-go music that came out of DC. Oh, that fat Fatback to me seems like they were a, a influence in that. Do you think that's a true statement or not? Um. I
1: think there are elements of, of similarity. Um, we were certainly aware of, of uh, Go-Go, Chuck Brown. A matter of fact, I listened to uh, his his song the other night um, because it, it was a groove and it had, had those elements, you know, the percussion and all the rest of the stuff. Um, we, we didn't try to emulate the Go-Go Beat and, and their style, but but um, like I think, like I said, I, there were elements that that uh, that that, uh, that overlapped between the types of music that we played and and what they did.
0: You know, well, I think I th- I'm saying I think the Fatback influenced Gungo you know, more than oh,
1: that's very possible. That's very yeah. possible. Um, I never had that conversation with Chuck. Ask <laughs> him, <laughs> you know. Uh, or any of the other groups that, that played that, but I, I would I would imagine they did. Um, I'm just, I'm thinking back to the time uh, frame because when Fatback started, they were really a New York band, you know, and they'd get some airplay in New York, but it didn't it didn't branch out very far until until they until um, maybe the Yum Yum album. Definitely, you know, by the time of Spanish hustle and and bus stop, then it started it started spanning out. But but uh so it's it's very possible that 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 uh that those groups might have heard some of that stuff underground, you know, uh some of the stuff that were fat and some of the other groups that out of New York that were doing stuff, you know. Um but I hear some of that, I hear some of Mandrill, you know, and their stuff, because Mandrill had had some of the same elements but it had more of a Caribbean type of feel with that driving brass, you know, so, uh, and then brass construction, obviously, you know, so,
0: so Bright Lights, Big City, uh, came out 79, second album, 79, Freak the Freak the Funk was a great, uh, track, uh, in my opinion, and it was very popular in my circles in Los Angeles. I was a little surprised to see it wasn't really necessarily that big of a hit overall. Was it even a single?
1: Freak the freak the fun.
0: I don't think
1: that was the single. Yeah. Well, like that's, I said, you know, the, um, promotion issues.
0: Yeah, that's surprising to me. So
1: some of the stuff we had to do ourselves, you know, some of the stuff we did ourselves, like, you know, where we hire our own for the promotion guys just to try to to get some stuff out there, but. But um, that was one of the ongoing uh, issues we had with uh, with with spring, you know, and and because you had to get it to a point where Polygram would then pay attention, you know, if you wanted to get the real muscle behind it.
0: Mm. And just, I think a lot of changes were just happening. Period, right around the turn of the decade uh, in the music business. I mean. you know disco starting to wane and and the music videos coming in all that sort of stuff so correct it
1: got a lot more expensive to
0: promote acts and so not everybody got that promotion <clears throat> but you guys hit it your biggest in 1980 right at that threshold with uh, hot box we we mentioned earlier but i mean that had the monster hits um got to get my hands on some money and um backstroken yeah, so and those nice. tracks were actually uh, consecutive on the record which Made it a real sweet spot on that on that album. Um, talk about those tracks and um, you know how that sort of changed the game for the band. Um,
1: backstroking was was an idea that Bill had. Uh, Bill likes to have those double entendre uh, type of, of, of uh, phrases and, and, and uh, things going on. If you listen to a lot of his lyrics. Even though he he's not singing on that one. But that was his idea and uh, Flip came up with the groove uh, and, and we just went along with it, you know, and and uh, and and fleshed it out to give it some feeling, you know. Uh, I put that that moog sound in the very beginning to give it that little hook so that as soon as you heard that you knew it was coming. A little more Bernie influence yeah definitely well a little bit of Bernie but you know that slide just you know was just one of those things and we had some interesting things with that slide live. but anyway <laughs> uh, but but it, that was we knew that would be a hook um, uh, I didn't do as much Bernie with the bass I just reinforced the bass mostly with that one um, not so many of the little frills that Bernie would like to put in but but I, I, I wanted to give it that signature intro got to get my hands on some money with something that, that I really wrote and uh, it was for king tim um, the, the the one complaint i had with tim cuz tim was kind of lazy you know in terms of being being a rapper so he would also he wouldn't he, he 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 didn't write his own lyrics i would have to write lyrics for him, you know so uh, we had this idea for money, and then I had this idea for, to add this rap to it, and then add other little little things, you know, with the funny voices and things, which s- sort of is like, um, uh, um, who's the group? It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, but anyway. Um but we knew uh especially with the economy like it was uh in the Reagan years that that you know money would be something that people would relate to you know got to get my hands on some money you need some money so uh we thought that was that would be a good idea and we tried to make it funky and and uh and 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 appealing so you
0: know uh but that that
1: was a little that was more structured than than uh than
0: uh, backstroke was you know yeah, the, the, some of the arrangement choices, uh, you know, I've got to get my hands on some money. I mean, they're like, how did you, like, come up with the, how much trial and error was there in that? Um, you have element in particular or are you just talking about? You know, just the way the, the background vocals and, and, and the different parts to it and the synth part and the, um, all those elements are just, you know, it's more complex than some of the other songs. In that way, uh, yeah.
1: Um, well, basically, when we were recording it, because there are two grooves. You got that beginning groove with the baseline, line you know, and then towards the end, it's more just groove than actual structured baseline. You know what I'm saying? We're just grooving. Um, that was due to, just to the length, you know, when we recorded it, we started having fun, you know. Somebody play a little group, okay, let's keep that going, you know, and you just go with that. Um, I wanted it to be humorous, you know, so sort of, the sort of lyric that Tim was, was, was rapping, we kept that funny and then we put the little voice sounds in there to, to add some more of that humor to it, to make, make it ear candy. And then uh, Carol Sylvan who did some of the, 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 the female leads on it, you know, uh, we just want to make it a party record. It, but you're right. It has a lot of different, different elements, a lot of uh, different sounds and voices coming at you uh, during that, you know, um, it was, it was just one of those things that, that one uh, I'm not gonna say that I had it all planned out I had ideas but as sometimes ideas come to you as you're doing them you know oh this might be a good one let's try this let's put this in there Um, uh, um, Tim's laugh where we slowed the track down so when he he said it you know and then it would go into the high Mickey Mouse type sound of voice you know that kind of stuff that was that was something that I, I kind of knew I wanted to throw in there just as as uh, uh, funny you know uh, funny stuff you know so it's sometimes magic just happens when you're in the studio and you're actually creating I've always enjoyed being in the studio or in a recording situation you know um, because I like the spontaneity of creating the ideas a lot of times. Because even sometimes when you know what you want to do it, what you want to do and how you want to put it down, something else will come to you as you listen to it, you know. And, and, uh, or you might want to improve it. And then I've had the experience, especially when when you're doing it and sequencing it, where you have a power surge and it's all gone. Now you got to recreate it. And how do you get that groove, you know, Nine times out of ten, you can't get that exact exact same thing that you were doing, but it may be better than what you were doing, you know, mm-hmm. because now you're you're improving on what you what you remember of what you did. So, you know, it's it's there's, there's truth to the fact that you're saying this is the creative process, you know. You're being creative. Or at least you hope you're being creative, you know. Uh, it depends, you know. Some people take
0: shortcuts. <laughs> Did did the fact that you had Part of ways with Jimmy uh, at that point allow you to uh, Focus and dial in a little bit more than before and take take your time a little bit more maybe? Um, Not really because it wasn't until the
1: um, the very Let's see we did the last spring album, which was with love. It was just before uh, I think on the floor was the next to the last spring album and then than uh with love there was a little more time between those two because bill had had agreed to an extension with spring uh but other than that we were still doing the two two albums and then on top of that now i'm touring with them while we're traveling around the country Mm -hmm. the world so so that didn't really uh give more time maybe it gave me a little more insight into uh, the talent that was traveling with us because you know now we're we're traveling as a group, so I'm seeing them all the time, you know. So I know strengths and weaknesses uh, a little better than I did when I just come in and say, okay, let's try this, let's try that, you know. Um, but time but but, time, how, how many, how many uh, original uh,
0: members don't yeah. go with the group
1: of You know? Let's see. Well, Flip and Johnny, Flip, Flip, uh, Johnny Flippin, uh, Johnny King, George Williams. Um, were original members, and obviously Bill uh, were original members. I'm not an original member of Fatback, even though sometimes they list me that way. But um, Earl Shelton, who played saxophone, was original saxophone player. Uh, by Hotbox, he was no longer playing with with, uh, with uh, the group. Also, uh, George Adams, who was another who was an alto player, also used to uh, used to play with the group uh, on and off. So. People had had come and gone through, a lot of people went through Fatback, you know. Um, that's why, generally, if you look at Fatback pictures, you keep seeing different people, <laughs> you know, because, yeah. you know, sometimes people even think Calvin Duke, I'm Calvin Duke with hair, you know, because they see all this hair, that must be you. No, that's not me, <laughs> that's, that's somebody else, you know, because <laughs> I wasn't playing with them there, except in the studio, you know, I would do stuff, so. Certain uh, degree of anonymity. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But the, the alumni alumni fatback was was pretty big. Yeah,
0: hotbox Hot was unusual too in that yeah, it started with good. a ballad. Uh, I was wondering, you know, how did that sequencing sequencing come to be? <sighs> which which ballad started the album? The hotbox album. The, the title track was kind of a a y kind of song. And that led off the record, right?
1: Hotbox, ooh, girl, you got a hotbox. That's hotbox. Is that the one you're talking about?
0: It's kind of compared to the others. It's kind of down tempo. Oh,
1: okay. Yeah, Yeah, I can, I can, I can go with that. Um, I don't know if we had a specific um, concept part of the thing um when you were trying to do uh sequencing on album on on the album would was trying to even out the sides time-wise you know once again as we talk about how you're cutting it you know from from the, the cutting lathe uh, perspective so um uh, and and possibly because Bill had an affinity for that. That one I don't really remember why we let off with Hotbox. Um,
0: I don't necessarily think. There was an ingenious concept that took months to develop. (laughs) (laughs) No, that wasn't
1: us.